Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 21, Drama by Raina Telgemeier. I've always loved the theater, but I figured out pretty fast that I fit in best behind the scenes. Now I'm in charge of set design for my middle school play. It's a dream come true, except... What? My amazing idea for a prop might be a misfire. The cast and crew aren't exactly getting along. Not to mention, I don't know if I still like the guy I thought I liked. And I'm not sure if the guy I think I like likes me. Talk about drama. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read, analyze it, discuss it, review it, and determine whether or not it's worthy of its reputation and or its place in the canon. As usual, I am your host, Tom Panneries, and I am not alone on this quest through all of the uh, dramatic stylings of Raina Selgemeyer's now probably modern classic graphic novel. Along with me is the... Drama Queen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's me! <laughs> the Drama Queen to my stagehand. Oh. Stella. Thank you. Yes, it's great to be here. I'm glad you put this in my focus, and it's interesting because this came from a random conversation we had via text message, Mm -hmm. and you pulled a 180 on me and decided to switch because we originally had something else planned. I'm sure we'll come back to that one sometime, and then you did this one. Do you think you would be... You say you have a... 
a difficult, a complicated relationship with musical theater. Uh, yes. Were you to work on a musical, do you think you would be on stage or behind the scenes? Now, yeah. I would be behind the scenes. Okay. In some capacity. Um, yeah, there was a point when I was very younger that I would have been on stage, but but by the time I hit puberty, I was... I I would have clearly been the behind the scenes. I did work stage. Well, I didn't work stage crew for a junior high school musical. I helped build the sets. Mm. So that which is different than working stage crew. We we were. I was part of. Me and a bunch of my friends were part of what they called the tech club, which was basically wood shop after school. If you wanted to do more wood shop and technology related things like build model rockets and that sort of stuff and one of our projects was to help build the sets for i think the musical was annie get your gun ah and so we were never there for like show night or tech week or any of the other stuff it was basically like we were there building building stuff and drilling stuff and hammering stuff and other people painted it and put it all together uh my sister was on stage crew in high school a bunch of her friends were theater people, and uh, they were very much the stereotypical theater people. So, and I'll leave it at that, because I don't want to okay. insult anybody in our audience. <laughs> yeah, and I was always on the stage, so it's something I very much love, and I hope to get back to it soon. <laughs> we'll see. And yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. So this was this was fun to read. All right, yeah. So um, this is this is a book. This is actually a this. I, I don't know if this is our most recently published book. That honor might go to Eleanor and Park, uh, but this is one of the most recent published books in the uh, in the list that we've done. As as this was published in 2012, and it is a graphic novel by Raina Telgemeier. It is called Drama. It was published by Scholastic. And um, before I get into my history with the book, because this is something we always do, what is yours? This is my history right now, carving it out. I had no idea that Raina Telgemeier existed, and so I am. I mean, perhaps I will pursue. I think you were shocked when I told. You do that because yeah. I guess she's pretty prolific now. Well, that and you're uh, middle, so sorry that, about that, that and you teach like middle school kids. Yeah, and but they is, don't really—they're a little. If they're reading stuff, they feel like this kind of stuff. They're highbrow for it. Oh, there's a bit of a snootiness. I'm okay. afraid. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm just saying. I don't. I'm the person reading the graphic novels, not my 13 mm-hmm. year old uh, students. But yeah, so this is my first experience of this Telgemeier, as well as this book. Cool. Um, I've this is actually the third time I've read this. Um, the first time was, uh, gosh, like two or three years ago. I was doing a. I kept seeing this in the Scholastic Book Club thing or the Scholastic Book Fair thing that would make its way through my school. Um, which rarely had anything that the kids above the freshmen would be interested in reading because it was really clearly aimed toward like middle grades. But I'd always find like one or two things at that thing to buy my, my son. Um, 
And this and her other two at the time, graphic novels, Smile and Sisters, were available. And uh, I kept I kept wondering, like, what is this about? Because it looked really interesting, and, and the, the art style looked uh, looked interesting. Um, and then I was doing, like, a Comics in the Classroom PD that I put together, and I grabbed this off the shelf because I put, like, a huge display together of different graphic novels and trade paperbacks and comic books, you know, et cetera. And... Um, so I had it in my hand from the school library copy and I read it because I was like, I've always been kind of curious. I wonder what's this about. And I think, um, I think I might've read it in like a day. And then, um, a couple of years ago or about a year or so later, I was taking a class on young adult literature and we had to pick books in different areas. And I, we had to pick some, um, graphic novels was one of the genres, uh, so I picked two. I picked this one because uh, somebody else had been reading it, and, and so I decided to read it again. And then the other one I remember picking was this One Summer, which is by the Tamaki Sisters. Mm, yep. Of, yeah. Who, um, one of whom is doing... It's over at Marvel she, at the moment? She is. She was doing uh, Hulk, and, so. and she's going to do X-23 is restarting. Yeah. Was it Mariko? Yeah. Okay, that's the one. I don't remember who the name of the other sister is. Um, I would recommend that graphic novel this one summer. It's it's a really, really good coming of age novel, uh, a graphic novel about. Uh, I think the main character is like a thirteen or fourteen year old girl. So, um, and then and this was the third time I read it. I read it for this podcast, and once again, I think I read this in the span of not even a day, like two hours. It's it's a very very quick read, and the book is very popular as as I mentioned, sort of in our conversation a few minutes ago. And I'm going to go through the context of the book and the real-life history of the author and then get through the plot synopsis. And then, of course, as Stella and I always do with these books, we are going to break this thing down and talk about what we liked and what we didn't like and really kind of get into the various discussions, you know. So uh, something that I found interesting about Raina Telgemeier is that she was born on May 26, 1977. That is almost before me. I was born on June 23rd. She is one day younger than Star Wars. Um, anyway, that has nothing to do with Rita Selgemeyer. I was just like, oh, that's her birth date. And I always find it funny that, um, you know, she's a best-selling graphic novel author at the age of 41, and I'm wondering what the hell I've been doing with my life. Telgemeier is so well-known and popular as an author that her fans actually refer to her by her first name, Raina. And her graphic novels have sold tremendously since she began drawing adaptations of the Babysitter's Club books back in 2008. At this point, in 2018, she has four original graphic novels. They are Smile, which was published in 2010, Sisters, which was published in 2012, Drama, which was published in 2014, Ghosts, which was the most recent one that was published in 2016. And before I go into the history of drama, um, I thought that I would mention Smile, which was her first graphic novel, actually started as a webcomic, and then it got picked up by Scholastic, where she finished it and turned it into a full-length graphic novel. So she was publishing this serially, you know, on, on the web. And instead of having, like, a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter to publish, like, a print collection... Um, the publisher actually was popular enough. The publisher offered the money, and she was able to basically quit her day job and and do this for a living, which is the dream, right? 
So Drama was published in 2014, and while it is fiction, Telgemeier draws on her own experiences to create some of the characters and situations. She was in choir in high school. She sang in the ensemble for many school plays. And furthermore, uh, two of the characters in the book, Jesse and Justin, who are brothers, were based on two of her real-life friends. The graphic novel has been a bestseller for years. And in 2016, which is two years after it published, it was number two on BookScan's top graphic novels list, selling 212,852 copies. And that's only about 400 copies fewer than the number one graphic novel of that year, which was her newest book, Ghosts. Um, By the way, in 2016, on that top bestseller list, her other two graphic novels, Smile and Sisters, which had about four or six years, you know, having been published four or six years before that, were in fourth and fifth. A year later, in 2017, uh, Drama had dropped from, was it second to fifth place? But it still sold 177,989 copies. And I should give this the caveat that Professor Allen gives to his shows about comic sales figures. In that book scan, which is run by Nielsen, I believe tracks orders and not necessarily all units sold. So, you know, there, there might be some discrepancy about how many copies are actually on the shelves and how many copies are actually purchased. But nearly 178,000 copies of a book that is four years old translates to roughly $1.95 million in sales. That's 2017. And for comparison, it's a bit of a false comparison because the figure I'm going to give you is from Diamond. Diamond's best-selling graphic novel 2017, Saga Volume 7, shipped 47,775 copies, according to Comicron. Now, that's to local comic shops, and not maybe that might not be to Barnes & Noble, but and I don't know how many copies were added to that number if you take the shipping and sales of Saga Beyond Diamond to, like, other book distributors, because I know that a lot of these graphic novels and trade paperbacks are available outside of what Diamond is sending you, but... I just, the point I was making is that her graphic novels are huge and they're hugely popular. And since they're published by Scholastic, you'll find them listed on the pages of the Scholastic Book Club flyer, which they still send out, by the way, like the same format they've been using since you and I were in elementary school, where you have that newsprinty flyer with the pictures of things and you fill out the order form, although you can also do it online now. Warm my heart when he asked when my son asked me to fill it out earlier this year for a book that he wanted, and I was like, sure. So, and they also sell the Scholastic Book Fairs, which is like I said, where I found it. Um, you can also find it in a number of public libraries, which is where I got my copy. Um, I do not own this. I've checked it out a few times. And school libraries, of course. Now, this is a graphic novel that's aimed at middle schoolers. It's about a girl who is on the stage crew of her school's musical production, and it's a story about being obsessed with theater while also trying to navigate the early adolescent minefield of being a teenager. You know, friendships, crushes, kind of figuring out who you are. And it is, at least from my point of view, a very PG book. However, on the ALA, the American Library Association's list of the 10 most banned or challenged books in the country for 2017, drama was ranked number three 
behind Sherman Alexie's The Absolute True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which is actually a very funny book. It was number one a couple of years ago, um, but Sherman Alexie's like a, a, a skis and is like Eddie Berganza level of like harassment, which pains me to no end because it's Maybe. such a great book. And Jay Asher's 13 Reasons Why. 13 Reasons Why was the most Bander Challenge book last year. The reason, drama is number three, LGBT characters and being deemed, quote, sexually explicit. Let's compare this I to know, Fun right? Home when you actually see a hoo-ha. It's called the vagina, Stella. Shh. Don't, don't. Right, we can make this a recurring bit. <laughs> oh, it, it doesn't make sense with this one. But I saw that and I thought, how very odd. There's no I sex know. in this at it's all. It's been going, this has been going on. This isn't just 2017. This has been going on since the book's publication. Uh, Telgemeier said in a 2015 Washington Post article, quote, I'm grateful Scholastic has been willing to stand behind me on drama. Even though they're technically a children's publisher, they're not afraid to let their authors push the envelope. While that's not necessarily what I was trying to do with drama, I knew it was a story that needed to be told, and my editors made it more possible for me more than possible for me to do so. Scholastic has the to insert my own kind of little bit of, of what I can see from the uh, from the publishing industry, Scholastic has a lot of cred and, and, and the ability to do that because they are making money hand over fist because I believe they are the United States distributor for Harry Potter. And that alone probably keeps the company in the black. So, <laughs> um, so they have they have the pull, they have the power to do this. And, and standing by their author, you know, just to get on my soapbox, I do appreciate that from a publisher because some publishers would maybe not do that. Um, anyway, I will. Get, I'm going to get into the plot synopsis in a moment, but I would like to point out this is an award-winning book. It won um, the 2013 Stonewall Book Award in Children's and Young Adult Literature, an award given by the American Library Association that serves to recognize authors who tackle LGBTQ-related topics, and it has also been nominated for a Harvey Award. Um, which is, I believe, the uh, the comic book award named after Harvey Picar. Uh, and so it's a group of comic pro- professionals recognizing other professionals for excellence in comics. This was not, to my knowledge, um, nominated for an Eisner, but I think she has an Eisner for at least one of her other graphic novels. I want to say either Smile or Sisters, or maybe both won an Eisner. So. I think it's in my little book here it says smile also won a an uh-huh. eisner yes it's on the back cover of my thing cool yeah um all right so usually this is where i do my own plot synopsis but a combination <laughs> you, i usually, do i write those okay. from scratch i know you're um, a very amazing no, I'm person not. but anyway uh so this is where I would write my own synopsis, but a serious time crunch because if just to peel back the curtain, Stella's done with school. Tomorrow is my last day <laughs> for the like yeah, for tomorrow's you, the last yeah. day with any students possibly, and then Friday's the last the checkout day. So it's been a very, very busy, not even rough, just very, very hectic last few weeks. Um and uh so that there's a serious time crunch there. And then Wikipedia, I looked up the summary of the book on Wikipedia. I was just trying to kind of refresh my memory about what the book's about. And uh, it's really good. So I'm actually going to 
I'm citing my sources here. I'm saying that I am <laughs> taking Wikipedia's summary of drama and giving it to you guys. So I'm not passing this off as my own work. This is not plagiarism. All right, here we go. Drama follows Callie Martin, a seventh grader at Eucalyptus Middle School. The novel opens with Greg, Callie's longtime crush and the brother of her good friend Matt. She confesses her feelings for Greg and they share a kiss. In school, Callie joins the stage crew for the production of Moon Over Mississippi as the set designer. Later, when she looks for Greg, Callie finds out that Greg and his ex-girlfriend, Bonnie, are hanging out again. The following week, Callie proposes her ideas for the set design and suggests making a cannon that actually has an explosion. There is some doubt voiced by her peers, but Callie promises them that she can create one. Later on, while hanging up posters for the musical, Callie meets twins Justin and Jesse. Justin is eager to try out for the musical, but Jesse tells Callie that he is too shy. The next day, Callie and Matt are working on the set design when Liz, another of Callie's good friends, asks them to accompany her to the basement because she is scared to go alone. On the way back up, they have an awkward exchange with Greg. Later on, Callie runs into the twins who invite her to go to the mall with them. Callie wants to walk past the baseball field with the two boys before leaving to make Greg jealous, but it nearly backfires before Justin steps in. At the mall, Callie shows Jesse a book about set designs and describes her love for theater production and her dreams for the future. As they wait for the twins' father to pick them up, Jesse and Justin sing one of the songs from the musical. Callie realizes that both boys have serious talent and urges Jesse to try out too, but he refuses. Callie then asks him to work on stage crew with her, which he enthusiastically accepts. The next day, an angry Matt confronts Callie, who is confused over his sudden aggression. At lunch, she sits with Justin, who tells Callie that he is gay. Callie is a little surprised, but accepting of him nonetheless. During the following day, Callie and Jesse watch the auditions for the musical. To Justin's dismay, the lead role is taken by West Redding. There's a name. That night... It is. West Reading. Um, that night, Callie recalls how her love for theater production began when her mother took her to see Les Miserables. The next day, during set production, Callie and Jesse take a snack break, and Jesse reveals how he wants Justin to have his time to shine. Some days later, the stage crew accompanies Liz down to the basement again, where they find Bonnie and West kissing. Sometime later, Callie and Liz are hanging out and working on the musical production when Callie confesses her crush on Jesse. Liz tells her, ask Jesse to the dance, and Jesse enters the room shortly after. That night, Callie texts Jesse and asks if he wants to go to the bookstore with her, to which he never replies. The next day, Jesse is waiting in her locker and accepts the request in person. After school, Callie meets up with Jesse and Justin and their father, who takes them to the bookstore. Upon waiting to be picked up, Callie asks if the twins' father knows that Justin is gay, to which Justin tells her, no. The next day, Callie runs into Greg again, and they exchange conversation about the upcoming dance, which Callie wishes for Jesse to ask her to. Callie is then busy with preparing for the musical, going through rehearsals and successfully trying to figure out the canon. When sales for the production are low, she demonstrates her canon in front of the student body and generates a lot of excitement. The opening night of the musical is a success, but the second night is marred after West breaks up with Bonnie. Bonnie locks herself in a supply closet after one of the acts and refuses to come back out. The stage crew is in panic before Jesse dresses up as a girl and goes on instead of Bonnie. He performs well, and then he and West share a kiss. Jesse is praised for his performance and then asks Callie to the dance. At the dance, Jesse disappears for a long time before Callie finds him, talking to West outside. 
He implies to Callie that he is gay, and Callie storms off after he makes a comment about her falling in love with every nice guy. Callie bumps into Mm. Greg and they go for a walk, where Greg tries to kiss Callie again, but she refuses. Later, Callie meets with Jesse, where he apologizes and thanks her for helping him break out of his shell. Later, Matt confesses his crush on Callie that made him act out of jealousy and lash out. Afterward, Liz forgives Callie for choosing a boy over her, and at the end of the novel, the stage crew celebrates the success of the musical, and Callie is made stage crew manager for the following year, much to her excitement. So that is drama, and I'm going to ask Stella the same question we ask each other after every plot summary, which is... Did you like this? I did really enjoy it. Now, well, I guess we'll get to the art. So when I opened it, I wasn't sure what to expect. I thought, you know, looking at it, oh, no, is this going to be, quote, unquote, beneath me? But actually, it's very well-rounded. I was super engaged. I really liked Callie's Callie as a character and because I am well versed I would say mm-hmm. in theater and musical theater productions I felt even more empathetic towards everything that was going on but I'm normally on stage so I got to see you know what happens behind the stage and then also looking at things that you know I may not have well I've run up against some of those things mainly you know falling for boys that aren't going to fall for you but you know other other things that I think we're going to start encountering more and more as as people become more comfortable with who they are. So I, I really liked it, and I thought it was a good representation of many different people and uh, a unique setting. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked it too. I liked it more than I thought I would, and I find a, you know, not that it's 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 not layered in the way some other novels are, but I do find little things here and there upon rereadings. And like I said, um, it's just by chance that this is the third time I've read it. Um, but like it didn't, and I had a a little time between readings, but the second, third time around, I, I kind of, I saw a little bit more about, you know, that, that it was a little deeper than I thought it was. And we will talk about the Mm. art, um, as well, because I think, yeah, I think it's almost like deceptively simple, um, because of the artwork, uh, and and then I'm, I'm looking at Callie and I'm like, on some level, she's kind of although <laughs> she's kind of cut from the same mold, although not as like completely wacky and crazy as Mabel Pines. Like, there's a sort of quirkiness. I know Mabel's like insane, and one of the like really most fun 12 year old girl characters ever written, but she's also like fighting, you know, gnomes named, Sh- named Schmidlock, mm. but Schmidlock. <laughs> so, um, oh, but there is this, like, I, I saw that kind of like, I saw that sort of crazy teenage girl characterness in here, uh, in, in Cali. Um, and, and mm. with Mabel where it's amp- amped up to the extreme. And I, I just thought of that, but, um, it's kind of the, one of the first questions um, I'm going to start with, and, and I'm I'm going out of order. 
uh, because I do want to ask, I just want to start with Callie, you know, like what's your impression of her? Is she relatable? Is she a positive female character? Is she not? I mean, what's your, um, what's your take on her as a female protagonist in a, in a novel or graphic novel? Sure. This is tough because I am trying to think whether or not this book passes the Bechdel test. Oh, interesting. I think it, I think it might, but a lot of times when she's talking to her friend, uh, I've forgotten her friend's name now. Do you recall her friend's name? Liz, okay. I mean, they have talked about step and such, so, or, what did I say, step? I think it's because I was looking at a panel where they were dancing. They have talked about actual stagecraft and things like that, so we shall say yes. So, one of the things that I struggle with with YA, because I see many merits with it, is female protagonists in YA, and I guess selfishly, I want them to be someone who is not going to be reliant on a boy or try, you know, in some sort of journey to find a boy. And I would say maybe that's only 50% of this mm-hmm. book. I mean, even that, that might be too high a percentage, but I'll just say that's 50%. But, so that was a little, ag- because she was going, you know, Greg, obviously, yeah. she was going for Greg. And then the next person that it seemed, this might be too harsh, but the next boy that paid attention to her, suddenly she's having, you know, these ideas that, oh, maybe he likes me, maybe this could be a good match. And, of course, that didn't work out at all, and then it comes back to Greg. So maybe we'll say two-thirds, two-thirds of the book. But her redeeming factor, of course, is I think at the very end where she does gain some sense of identity, I think, of who Callie is and that she doesn't necessarily need a guy. You know, if it happens, it happens. But there is one right there at the very end and she ends up refusing him. So is she relatable? I think absolutely for this age group. So because this is coming from, this is my skewed perspective Mm -hmm. of someone who's in adulthood, and this is what I would really like to see as a strong uh, female character so that young women growing up can understand that love is beautiful and wonderful, but you don't need to be defined by whatever person you're with or going after someone. So that's my hesitancy there, but I can absolutely see myself in the seventh and eighth grade middle school, you know, chasing after I, I basically harbored a crush on this one guy for all of high school, but you know, this, these things absolutely happened, and and there are uh, you've got weird people in your life as well that cause you stress. I'm talking about Bonnie mm-hmm. here, uh, people who frustrate you and everything. So I think absolutely she is relatable. I think adult perspective, it's a little bit harder. And yeah, I think those are both your questions, right? Is she relatable? Yeah. Do I like her? Is that yeah. what it was? Yeah, because I do like her. I do like her. There is value in her, but I think you just have to be on that whole journey. You can't just read a couple pages and be frustrated with her because it's very much seeing Callie as she goes through and and how she 
I think, you know, that canon, I feel like, is a great metaphor for just overcoming lots of obstacles because she was working so hard. It was falling flat. She didn't want to let anyone down, and then she was able to, to come up with it. But, again, don't be defined by these things that you're creating because the very last show, I think it was, you know, it messed up. She didn't she didn't get it done, which was by accident. So, yeah, I think it's a, a great little representation, but just with a caveat to say, you know, don't necessarily model your life after Callie. Yeah. I, it, it's almost like um, one of the things that I think really, uh, really kind of hits Telgemeier hits the point home like at the end where Greg tries to kiss her again basically, um, sure. or, or try. It's almost like Greg does that, and and this is a very well, this is a very guy thing. I mean, this this goes beyond just teenage boys, but this sort of like, okay, well, I like you now. Like, that's sort of like, like, like not understanding how, okay, like back in the very beginning, Bonnie had broken up with him and she kisses him on the cheek and then he, she was like, what is that for? And then he kissed her, but then he's all like, you know, oh, I didn't mean it, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she, she's genuinely upset about it. Um, and then at the end, he's like, it's almost like he's, He's like, okay, well now every now we can do this. Like now it's your turn, or like I like you now, or or, or something to the extent where like she should be grateful. Like, I mean, that's like the attitude I get from him. And there are a lot of guys who are like this. And to her credit, she doesn't. She she rejects him. Her character arc is actually a lot more subtle than I thought on the first read, the first time I read it, because her demeanor doesn't change very much. You know, mm-hmm. she's. She very much acts like the same person or has the same sort of personality throughout the book. So it's not like we go on some sort of hero's journey where she's kind of hesitant or timid at the beginning. But by the end of the novel, she's like, you know, a superhero, you know, like that's not her journey in this in this story. She she does get the promotion at the end to the manager of the stage crew and. She doesn't mm-hmm. get the guy. She just kind of, you know, in fact, she rejects the guy. So she's very much, you're like you said, kind of just starting to discover who she is. So there is a journey, but it's it's presented. It's like Telgemeier is trying to ground this in reality in a way to show that um, we have these stories and we have these journeys over the course of, say, a year in school. But they don't always play out like this is a movie or the plot of a story. They they play out in much more subtle ways. Um which is something I also think we see with some of the other characters. Um, I think she's really likable now. The question that I had is, who's the audience? Now, like, it's it's a YA book. Does it appeal to a wide audience? Is this really niche? I mean, we're talking a book that has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking... Um, something that is really obscure here. This is a, you know, in some households she is a name. You know, Telgemeier is, is really well known. So, like, who, who is she aiming at? And if she's aiming at a wide audience, how is she expecting the various people who might read her book to to react to this? Yeah, I think Scholastic is really the reason why it's so oh, yeah, widely yeah. read. I think, you know, if we Credits were to Telgemeier be... and the publisher, yeah. <laughs> Of course. Are are they the yuppies that, or the what type? Of, what are the people that say I'm not going to? Oh, hipster, yeah. right? A hipster. So if we were hipsters, we wouldn't read this. 
because it's too much. It's too widely uh-huh. known. Scholastic is too big of a name, so we've got to go if, for you know the Boom Studios we or were, something if we like were that. Hipsters, we would yeah. have read her. We would have read Smile when it was a web comic oh. only. So we <laughs> and then tell, and everybody. tell everybody I was reading Raina Telgemeier sure. before she was cool. You know. Yes. I we're gonna get to the art. I'm yeah, gonna yeah. say that again, but. The art, I, I want to be clear that the art is not a turnoff for me. I actually really like the art. But if you open it, if you were, I, you know, our age or, you know, an adult, I think that it might be like, oh. You, I think glancing at, you know, judging a book by, in this case, its internal pages or pictures, you're going to think, oh, it's mm-hmm. childish. So I do think that at first glance, it seems like we are catering towards six, seven, eight. Six, seven, eight is is the main audience, but I think that depth, just like is that, is that the little grades prince. or years, okay. grades. Okay. Sorry, basically Callie's because yeah. she's yeah, in yeah, middle yeah, school, yeah. so I feel like it it's very much a middle school esque uh, audience. And then <clears throat> I think you know, just like the little prince, where there are lessons and themes that can be appreciated. By all, I think that adults can look at it with a discerning eye and catch things as well. And also, you know, it might help them inform them, perhaps, on, you know, how to raise their children, yeah. perhaps. I know that, you know, discussions are being had potentially in, in households about, you know, how do we relate to people that aren't like you. So this is, I think, one of those ways that you could potentially open that door for discussion yeah i'm gonna agree with you there and i'm also gonna i'm also gonna um add that one of the things that telgemeier does and she does very subtly um because it's just there is she has a very diverse cast of characters you have very different skin tones and you have people who are like her best friends black and her um jesse and justin are i want to say indian they do have a different. Or, yeah. They're brown, for for lack of a better yes, word. Yes, I would I'm say so. To... And there aren't really any last names. So yeah, it's nobody hard to really tell. has a last name in the in the book, which is fine, you know. But like you know, and then there are white characters, and, and Callie herself is a very quirky girl. She has purple and pink hair, um, <laughs> and uh, so she kind of lets her. She kind of embraces her weird a little bit, which is cool, um, and. Um, she uh, she's got gay characters and it it is just one of those things where it's not even the gay characters in my opinion are not presented in a way that is it just feels very natural to the story you know it's like um these are guys who you know and then you find that they both are we we're going we'll talk about that in a, in a moment but I do like I do like that she's showing this just kind of as it is. So there there might be it's relatable beyond just like a white audience or or something like that. I or at least I hope or at least she's showing she's showing the diversity that exists within a lot of schools, um, just simply for what it is, as opposed to um, you know forcing it in some way or another. Uh, but then again, like I said, I'm I'm coming at this from a middle-aged white man's perspective. So you know whether or not I'm right about the <laughs> not diversity. Them yeah, yeah, again. Not yeah. Them. So whether or not I'm right about like how well this possibly portrays diversity in a setting is 
you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, but yeah, but let's talk about the art a little bit because this is the draw of a graphic novel. You you need story and art, right? For um, so art without story is 90s image, and um, story without art can work, but a lot of times the art bad artwork can so detract from a story. And as we've talked then about <laughs> both of the novels that we've done that were graphic novels already, and, and I'll add The Little Prince, because The Little Prince had illustrations, so did Charlotte's sure. Web. Those are there for a reason, and then and the artwork and the style of artwork and the way it's presented is so vital to a graphic novel that mm-hmm. um, we you have to talk about it and you have to kind of hold it on equal footing with the writing. Like if the artwork in March was not very good, I think the story would be fascinating, but I don't think it would resonate as much. I think the artwork lends itself a lot to the to that book. And the same thing with Persepolis. Um, and we talked about that. So like what's your take on the artwork? I like it. You know, I was flipping through it when you were doing your synopsis, and on page 79, do you have I a copy with you? When you actually see Wes, for and like close-ups, and then you actually see his blue eyes, I just have to say, because I know you know this show, it reminds me of some Daria it's art. It's very Daria. It reminds me I of that. I loved me some Daria back in the day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, for me, you know, there are people who, in, in comics, they like house style, which I'm so try, sort of trying to figure out exactly what that means. Other people like, um, I don't you know, Jim, uh, what's his Lee? name? Oh, God, Jim Lee. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I don't know if that's house style or not. I'm more of a, I like brighter stuff and maybe, not necessarily cartoony, maybe it has some anime inspiration to it you know Babstar is a great representation of that so this is is something yeah this is something that speaks to Mm -hmm. me and the reason why I really like anime characters is because you can see all sorts of emotions on their face and so when you you know you see Callie blush sometimes or you know more than just I mean, it's not like they're doing little circles or their whole face is red. It's just a little subtle subtle mm-hmm. line or two. And then if there's an embarrassment or an anoint that she added a, or whoever did the art, it's not Raina, is Raina it? Who did, did the art, Raina is it? the artwork, the color, the ah! color okay. with color by Gori Hiru. Gotcha. Gori Hiru. Okay. That's what it's G-U-R-I-H-I-R-U. That's the that's yeah. name. But yeah, she, she wrote and drew this. You know, they'll add just one, or she will add just one line to an eye, and you can sort of tell that there's there's something going on. I saw Callie saw something really cute and special, and her eyes get really wide, you know, in a very Mabel mm-hmm. manner. So I think it's, it's, I would say it's a more cute style, but it works well with this because, again, I think the age group of the actual character and potentially the audience and it softens maybe some of the more adult subject matter. So, you know, people are going to deal with, I think, engaging and interacting with different people in different ways. And, and and I think it's going to be a serious discussion because 
we have to treat people well and kindly, but she doesn't want to make it so serious that, like, you know, you should be scared of interacting with people that aren't like you. So I think she's able to use this art to really balance, you know, heavy subject matter, being also, you know, not just the, the queer community, but also, you know, being afraid of being yourself and, and uh, going out there for, for what you want to be and, and identity and everything. So she's got serious subjects, but I think she's able to balance it well with the art. Yeah. So and I yeah I think it's just it's fun it's colorful so I like. I it. love the coloring on this, as well. Um, I like how bright it is. I like how solid and bright the colors are, even though there's a lot of play with shadows and shading as well. Um, so I and I give and um, I. I'm the same way with art. Like I will, I will give any artist a chance. But like, um, I've come from the school or the fandom of the older school superhero love of the, um, well, my, my the house yeah, style. the house, the older house styles of like my my all time favorite comic book artist is George Perez. You know, so so mm-hmm. that that's where I'm coming from, and I grew up. But granted, granted, I when I was growing up in the in the eighties, um, and the times I would read comic books or I would see people like the Justice League in in merchandising art, it was um, there was some Kurt Swan doing Superman. Um, probably saw some Aparo Batman. I would probably have seen a, a few, a fair number of drawings by Neil Adams or Dick Giordano, or of course Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And they're all they're kind of derivative of they're not derivative of one another, but there's almost like a kind of a, a common thread running through that. But over the years, I've seen where like that style fits a specific type of story and specific characters. And then I look at other comic book artists, even in the superhero genre who fit certain characters. And then I see stuff like this. And this reminds me of like China Cluxton. Um, at one point she was trying to Cluxton major. And I don't remember it, which she, she's been divorced. And she wrote a, a great series for Oni press back in the day called blue Monday. Uh, that was very, very manga anime influenced. And, um, very cartoony. Natalie Nuragat, who wrote Between Gears, which is a great graphic novel. I see a lot of that in this. Um, you know who? You know what parts of this remind me of, or I see a very similar thing here? Something that you and I both read uh, last year, which was Nothing Better. Um, nothing mm. Better is not... The style is not exactly the same way, but there is a little bit of cartoony cartooniness. Sure for lack of a better word, and nothing better. And I also see just in bits and pieces, especially around some of the characters' eyes and some of the characters' expression, a little bit of Bill Waterston and definitely some Charles Schultz. Um, you know, there there are times where, uh, like, at the bottom, the bottom right-hand panel of page 32, um, after she's just met Jesse and Justin, and uh, Justin's the outgoing one, right? Um, yeah, yeah, Justin's the outgoing one, and Justin, um, Justin signs up, and, and she says, I'm on stage crew, and he's all, we'll be, we'll get to hang up for sure, hooray, and he, like, you know, sashays down the hallway, or whatever he does, and she's standing there, right outside the choir room, and her eyes, it's like two dots with these lines around it, it's a very, and and a kind of a squiggly mouth, it's a very Charlie Brown expression, so it's like you see her pulling from like all of these different things that have affected her style, and it's a very cartoony style, but it's 
and it's it's a on its surface it's a very light story so um that doesn't have any tragedy within it and it yeah, so it it really really fits and i i really it really makes this graphic novel approachable and then as you start to read it and you realize that the subject matter especially with some of the relationships in the book is a little more serious than just crushes on boys and things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's handled um well it's handled in a way that um you know like does it's handled in a certain way now does this tone of lightness in the artwork and some of the story help the book or does it does it hinder it does the message get lost in the silliness I don't think the message gets lost. I think, like I was saying before, I think there's a balance to it. I think, you know, six, seven, and eight, I'm training those ages. So, obviously, at some points, anything's going to go over their head, Mm comprehension-wise. But I think think it helps. I think they're not going to see something that's really in their face about, you know, pro pro empathy that sort of thing so i think this this works really well to be more subversive which i think to a certain extent you need to be subversive with some kids in teaching empathy you have to show them that they're actually doing it or you know sort of snuff it out and and um work with them on it without them realizing what you're doing and then you stop and you're like hey guys you just showed empathy so (laughs) that's i do that sometimes in my latin classes so i i don't think it it lessened it at all i think if they were making fun you know if someone if if one of the characters came out of the closet and then like started laughing and i don't know like some sort of terrible joke was made i think that would be a problem Mm -hmm. I'm still sort of working out that scene that you had actually said or Wikipedia did in their plot summary. <laughs> the fact that during this really open and intimate moment between Callie and Jesse, how he made that comment, you know, you shouldn't be falling for every guy that looks your way or whatever that was, which was really a hateful comment and he may have been i guess joking but it was it was a weird time because it just with everything that was happening that came out at a at a very bizarre moment but she ran away which was the appropriate if she had just stood there i think it would be like whoa what's going on with that but because she ran away i think kids or students can show or at least give their attention at why would that comment be the wrong thing to say that sort of thing so yeah. You know, the only thing that, At the yeah. same time, it's such a, like, a natural comment to make, but it's not out of character for a teenage boy to say something that stupid. Gay or I straight. I guess so, but he's been sweet the entire time. So, it's for me, it seemed out of left field. Uh, I don't know, but at the same time, I think he he thinks, maybe he thinks he's letting her down easy. Or, like, he's trying to be a friend, and this is like, well, I'm, I'm being honest with you, when he doesn't realize he's being kind of, he's being a jerk, you know? And, and I, I think that, that especially boys who, who don't understand the nuance of talking of interpersonal relationships, 
um, especially at an age where you're very, very self-focused. Um, think that being honest is like important, but don't realize that there's a, uh, yeah, there's a nuance. There's a skill to this, you know. So many men, don't, many men I, don't realize this either. By the way, <laughs> does well, this make my butt look big? No. <laughs> oh dear. Well, sure. Well, how are you? That's a landmine right there. That someone just dropped down in front of you. I will say though, in my opinion, that the the queer aspect of it. Hopefully, that's not offensive that I'm calling no, it that. I'm just uh, trying to encapsulate and, LGBTQ. And that's what, that, that was the word I was going to use in the question I had, which was about the the queer characters because the word queer gets sure yeah yeah i think that that is almost romanticized because it seems like and i can't you know i cannot speak on like personal experience here but it seems like the two characters that are coming out those Mm -hmm. twins are they run up against no issues whatsoever when jesse comes on stage let's just call it as an in drag and then there's a like then there's a flock of people which might be true. There is sort of a, a weird I think fandom against you know with um, like people I don't know I, I guess girls that like Yuri uh, not Yuri anime no I think that's right Yuri anime you know girls really like Yuri anime so it just seems very uh, more accepting than it would in real life and so I, I just wonder if Reina was afraid to step into the waters of uh, not everyone's going to be accepted unfortunately and there there might be some hard hard times ahead because you know this is for middle scores that would be my only thing in regards to uh, the lightness of the book i can see that i definitely i can definitely see that i think that she um she has these two come out or be out you notice that they're not all the way out. Like, their father doesn't know. Um, and they seem to be kind of coming out on some level, like, around people who they feel are safe in mm-hmm. some way or another. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Justin strikes me as the type of guy you would be in your high school with by the time he is is so extroverted that by the time he kind of makes it official everybody would be like yeah we all knew like you know like you never really hit you were hiding in plain sight whereas jesse um you know it's it's something where like he clearly trusts callie because he could have very well, like when when he was sitting there with West, and um, she's yelling at him, and uh, she kind of figures it out. He could have very come off with like some sort of guy jerk answer, like you know, because you are in middle school and you are immature enough to blow off a girl to hang out with your friends or you know whatever, you know so. Like, I don't really like you like that, or let's just be friends without even revealing as subtly as he does that he's gay. So, Mm. and he doesn't reveal to anybody else in the entire book. So, I mean, maybe West, who he's kind of talking to, but even West doesn't seem to know how to feel, you know? 
It's not like she kisses them mm. kissing in the play. And while the parents are all shocked by the kiss on stage, perhaps even if that had to be explained, somebody out there is laughing that off as a gag. You know what mm. I mean? Like not not like the audience, not Tugmeyer, but like somebody among the audience in that theater there is like, oh, they must have, you know, they were pulling a prank or something or, you know, so. But I do think, yeah, I do think it's, it. see, I don't, and this is this is where my lack of experience or, or my, my being, you know, a straight middle <gasps> white guy oh. comes yep, in. Yep, yep, yep. I don't know what it's like to come out of the closet as a teenager. Furthermore, I was a teenager in the early 1990s when being a gay teenager was still, or coming out, not being a gay teenager, let me fix that, coming out in the early 90s was not something that was commonly done. Um, because, I mean, you gay teenagers, sorry, queer teenagers still face harassment. And they still mm-hmm. face, and it was even worse. It would have been even worse when I was in in high school. And it was one of those things that there weren't, you know, there, there are people who I went to high school with who are proudly out and in some cases married, you know, um, and in other cases not, but they're in committed relationships. And back in high school, you know, there were a few who were like, we totally knew. Um, but at the same time, there were only one or two who really were out, out, you know, and, and most of them were still in the closet because for whatever reason, but one of those reasons might've been safety. I mean, you know, let's not forget that Matthew Shepard was killed 20 years ago, you know, in 1998. So, or 97, 98. So you've got, that's, that's a, that's an incident that, you know, really resonated through the community, like the, the fact that they would still kill somebody even as recently as that. So I, where I'm going with this is that like, you know, she is showing, and I think this is one of the reasons this gets challenged, because if you look through this book, at least in my mind, there's nothing sexually explicit in this entire book. I'm, am I wrong in thinking that, you know, am I being too liberal in my view here, but that it's not sexually, yeah, it's not explicit, sexually explicit. Is that what you just said? No, yeah, but it gets it gets thrown up. It gets thrown to the wolves in school boards and libraries, and we want to ban this because. And I think it's because it portrays queer characters in a way that is normal. I think what it does is it's, and I think it scares people, bigots like that, to see something like this portrayed in a way that is fairly ordinary. You know, mm-hmm. whereas Fun Home was well, Fun Home was sexually explicit, um, but sure. take away take away the um, the graphicness. You know, take away the nudity, take away the sex scenes, and just have them talk about it. It's still a much different type of story than this. It's still much about a, a struggle about identity and gender and, and a lot of other things that you don't necessarily see here. That's as overt. Um, and I think what you're seeing here is just kind of this almost bubblegum type of teenage romance or teenage story. And two of the characters, maybe three of the characters happen to be gay or bi. And it's treated in a way that is just sort of like, this is just who they are. And like, none of them kill themselves. None of them get beat up. 
None of them get rejected by their families and thrown out of the house. Like, it's just is what it is. And I think that scares people. Mm. Un- unfortunately scares people because it shouldn't scare people. But I think that that scares a lot of these people who are like, ew, gay, bad. This is going to ruin my child. After that ramble, what do you think? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know that I could. Well, I'm the one who said that it it was romantic. Mm-hmm. So you're you're saying that that's a positive yeah, aspect I think it's a really of it. Yeah, positive which, aspect of it. Well, it is, but I don't want anyone to go in thinking that that's what the world's going to be like. That's my well, issue that's with true, it. That's true. That's true. And I think, I think that. Um, I I think that I give the audience of this book a little more uh, you know credit for knowing that like not everything is going to be like that and and they probably have um and there are there are a million other stories that there are a lot of other stories that are out there that are um less positive in their portrayal of things and we need those stories as well so sure. um you know, but but I, I agree with you. You don't you don't want somebody looking at the saying, "Oh, this is the way it's going to be." In the same way, you don't want anybody seeing. This is kind of a lighter question. Um, is this like one of those books? Like, have you ever seen the movie Empire Records? No. Empire Records is it's one of my favorite movies to watch, just on repeat, basically, just as background noise. My wife loves it. A lot of friends of mine love it. And it takes place in a record store in the mid-90s. And it's one of those movies about people working at a job where you look at this, you're like, that'd be so cool of a place to work there. You know, like, I want to work at a record store like Empire Records. And then you actually go to work in a record store sometimes or work some retail job. And apologies to people who work retail, but, like, they don't show the crap that you put up with when you work certain jobs, you know? It's like watching a teacher movie and seeing all the inspiration that people do and then actually becoming a teacher and realizing that like you know i should have just watched full metal jacket i would have been more prepared for a teaching career so i was wondering like does this romanticized stage crew (laughs) drama production or like are people going to be like you know oh this makes me really want to join stage crew and they like join stage crew next year and it sucks you know it's a lot of work it's you know I think they they don't get that as well as the stage manager doesn't get a lot of respect because they've got it. They're really the ones that's making the production run with the set changes and all that stuff. And I, I think probably to a certain extent, not many issues happen. I think really the only problems that they seem to encounter is during the second to last performance. I think it was mm-hmm. or I, yes, it was the second where there was that random puddle on the ground which then caused Callie to slip and that thing popped. And then also I think that was when Wes slipped and hit his knee and then all this crazy stuff happened. So I think towards the end you get a little sense of drama, but the performance aspect is so – now this is coming from experience. Everything might be fun and dandy in rehearsals, blocking, things like that. But once you start getting closer and closer, because you got this deadline here, this isn't like a test deadline where, you know, it's basically you versus the test. And if you fail, then the test, you feel bad about it and maybe your parents punish you, but you're the only one that's really going to have those consequences. 
you need to get your act in order in order to because you're about to perform in front of everybody else. So it's high stress environment. Also, there, there's cattiness a lot of times. You know, for me, I had the lead two years in a row, and I remember the second year, it was I was Dorothy in Wizard of Oz, and there was just a lot of cattiness behind the scenes of like when I was uh, singing, and just a lot of judgment on how I was singing the <laughs> one of the songs there. So things happen. So I, you know, I think she gets at it, but again, she doesn't want to make it super intense. And uh, also, maybe looking back, she has fonder memories than she was actually in it. Because you said that this is sort of partially based on what she Yeah, lived. she's pulling from her own experience. Um, yeah, I don't have... I honestly don't have the context of this. That's why I asked you the question. Like I said, I, I was in what they called select chorus in 5th and 6th grade. And was therefore in some plays and did would did have some parts, and I think I was the lead in one play and <gasps> etc. But by the time oh, I was done with sixth grade, I was kind of on my way to not really wanting to do it anymore. Got guilted by my music teacher into joining chorus in the seventh grade, and then we went through three different chorus teachers in the span of a year and I was bullied horribly in that class so the moment I was able to get my credit on chorus I was like I'm done and I never uh, approached the stage again unless I was um, doing something regarding public speaking because I decided to be on the mock trial team in high school so I was however for 10 years a publications advisor I was a yearbook advisor and all the things you were just saying about yearbook uh, about stage crew and theater and how like when you screw up it's not like you just fail the test and you'll get them next time slugger it's now everybody else in this room has to pick up the slack for you you know like that sort of thing and oh my god i gave that speech to my yearbook staffs over the years like well i didn't do the spread like you didn't do the spread now somebody Probably me has to step in and make sure that spread gets done in, oh, 24 hours because the deadline's tomorrow. So I, you know, and this is something that is going out much like a production, like a theater production is going out to the entire school or the people who ordered it. Like, our names are on this, you know, like, it's so I totally know where you're coming from from that. Sure. And the cattiness, and the, you know, so. Um... Now, looking at some of the relationships and, and things, I do want to talk about um, a few things. Uh, we talked a little bit about Callie and Greg. And there are story, act, story, act, story arcs concerning Greg and Matt. Um, because Matt's kind of this, like, annoying... He, he's he's not an antagonist. There's no real antagonist in this in this story. But Matt's really, really rude to Callie through quite a bit. And there, you could tell they're friends. He's just like, you know, he's kind of the Brian Krakow of this whole thing. And he, uh, he, at the end, he's like, "I had a crush on you, but you chose my brother, and I was jealous, and I'm sorry for acting that way." So, like, w- what's the story concerning like this, and, and and these guys, you know, leaving out the other male characters who we, I think we just talked about a little, like Jesse and Justin and and West. Um, we're talking about like boys and girls in hetero relationships and masculinity because this is around the age where that that idea of masculinity beyond say 
action figures in sports really does start to take hold. You know, that there's a, that there's relationships with girls, you know, like, and you can use your masculinity to attract girls, you know, in that sort of (gasps) way. How does this deal with this? How, what is, what, what is she, what is she, how how is she portraying this? How is she yeah, portraying masculinity? What is she saying about it? Is she addressing something? Is there something to be said about the way these characters act around Callie and act toward her? Um, and the way she reacts to them. Yeah, well, I guess it's hard, actually, because I think we each have our own types, and Callie, I, I don't know if she's... I don't know, actually, if I could pin down what type she is. But the athletic one is is the easy go-to guy. Greg is pretty handsome. Uh, he seems fit, you know, and he's tall. And actually, that, for whatever reason, girls really go for tall guys. And <laughs> I will give you an example. <laughs> I've There are two. There's a nerdy kid in my eighth grade year. And then as he progressed in high school, and I was hearing all this stuff about, I mean, he loves bird watching. I'm hearing all this stuff about these, you know, these girls that like him. And I thought, this is so bizarre. What's going on? Second example is that I've got this uh, eighth grade, well, he's now going to be a freshman, but I taught his sister. And so I always, I'll let her know basically the, the happenings uh, involving him. If, if I ever find out a new girl has a crush on him, so many girls in the class that he made a joke because his mom asked at the eighth grade dessert dance, or no, I guess it was out in the hall. We were saying, you know, who are you going to dance with? And he said, I can't dance with the whole class. So, <laughs> which was a joke because, you know, the, all the girls liked him, but it was pretty close. But basically, long story short, they were both tall. And, and this is a weird thing. So I think that may be part of the reason. Then you have Matt. And Matt, I think, is, well, obviously, maybe he's a little nerdy. And I think he's he's not sure of himself. And as boys that don't have confidence will do, they're going to go the opposite way of showing that they like you by basically harassing you and potentially being mean and a jerk. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that he's lacking masculinity, but I think, you know, Greg is perhaps... I don't. Yeah, I don't even want to say he's hyper masculine, but it's you've more just of got a masculine and stereotype then, of masculine. Sure. Yeah, and then Matt is is just sort of a nerd. Mm-hmm. I I wonder if the tall the girl the middle school girls being attracted to tall boys is be, partially because of the rarity of really tall boys at least at the beginning of middle school because I just remember. Mm. Um, it, it takes a couple of years for boy, and you're there more than I am, so maybe I'm I'm just kind of you know talking out of my you know what. But from my experience, was that it took a little while for all the guys to catch up to the girls in height. Um, so, and there are a lot of even in freshman English, I see a lot of kind of runty guys, you know, like guys who like two years from now will be juniors, and you're like, wait, you were that little twerp in my ninth grade English class, you know that that. Um, maybe that's part of it. Yeah, Greg is very Greg is very stereotypical guy. Matt is, um, the nerdy little brother in a in a way, you know. And mm-hmm. I was just wondering, like, again, she rejects Greg 
because Greg is... Now, Greg, I don't think, is mean. I think Greg is more clueless than anything. You know? He... Because of the whole Bonnie thing, and he just thinks, well, like, she likes me, so now you can go out with me. Like, I think he's just kind of a clueless dude. Um, mm. And he's not acting in a way that's, you know, misogynistic or, or mean or anything like that. He's just... He's just got his head up as you know what because he because he's a selfish teenage boy um but matt it you're right and and i i know guys like that and i i at some point or another i may have been now i don't think i ever really treated girls that i liked that way i was the one who who thought if there was a girl that i liked who was like way out of my league um or even someone i did like i was kind of I was the type to either follow her around like a puppy or act like a complete goofball. That sort of immature, you know, like, you know, be goofy and be silly. And maybe she'll notice me, even though she probably thought I was like really immature. So um, that was my approach in middle school. No wonder I didn't get a date until I was in a senior. But were you pretty tall? I've always been. Yeah, I've always been one of the taller kids in my class. And the girl, are you sure that the girls didn't like you? If I had any idea that any girls liked me, I didn't know. <laughs> okay. Because I really, I really didn't because I was in the, I started being, I started being in the nerdy clique since like the sixth grade. So fifth and sixth okay. grade. So like, you know, that I was not, I did not hang out with the cool kids. So okay. I already had that kind of going for me. So if any girl ha- liked me, I had no clue. Um, and I was kind of, that's why I was, yeah, it, 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 I was always kind of oblivious to when a girl had a crush on me, if, Mm. you know, so, but, so I, but, but with guys like that, I saw guys like Matt and, and I knew friends of mine who were guys like Matt who really did have a crush on a girl and, and he probably seriously likes Callie, like would date her, you know? And and I brought up Brian Krakow because I love my so-called life, but I think it's a good analogy because Brian is is at times he's he's a bit of a jerk to Angela, but then again Angela is a bit of a jerk to him. But there is that sort of back and forth here going on where it's like he obviously likes her, but he's just you know, and 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 none of this is done maliciously, and I think that's important too because despite the name of this book this is not played up for the drama in a very very heavy way you know n- n- neither of them is stalking her you know there's nothing really political going on here she just wants to we can we can kind of extrapolate from there but, but then we have bonnie and um i can't remember if this is my question or yours it was mine. If it's about if is there to more Bonnie, to her? is there more to Bonnie than what we see? Because yeah. we know like basically two things. One, she goes out with Greg, and they broke break up, and they get back together again at one point or another, and then break up again. Or, and then she's like makes out with West, and she's also um, she also has terrible grades because I think it's Jesse is tutoring her correct at one point he tells um he tells west i think that Mm -hmm. um and callie Callie, that 
Bonnie actually asked him to take her test for him, or basically asked him to cheat for her. You know, in other words, why am I, you know, why don't you just do the work? Um, he said she can't ask her to help me cheat on her last test. Um, I didn't do it. She was mad. She must have started higher, harder as a result. Is the line he has? It's on page one seventy three. So, like, I don't know what is is what is what is it with Bonnie? I think there is something else going on. I, I wish that we knew more about her, but because it's Callie focused, and we and Callie is not in Bonnie's circle or vice versa, then I guess it's appropriate that we don't know anything about it but it just seems like there's probably as a teacher as a teacher i would say that there might be something going on and maybe she's just boy crazy and you know that that's her focus and she would rather do that than get good grades but she's also sort of a plastic a regina george plastic type of character oh yeah she's a heather and uh, and she also reminds me i don't know if you read the glorious Spider-Man loves Mary Jane, but Mary Jane, I, I love her character in that because she pretends to be this person who has her life together and is optimistic and fun to be around. But actually, when you when you see her alone, she's going through some tough times, and so I wonder if this is just something that Bonnie is putting on this facade, but really she's struggling with it and. My, maybe uh, a boy is sort of crucial to her identity because you see how hurt, and I think it's pretty genuine when Wes bro- bro- breaks up mm-hmm. with her, and how emotionally powerful I think it created that scene to be <laughs> inadvertently because she was crying. So I feel like there's something more. Um, she is that one that sort of the drama is, is centered around, so I guess she's also, she works as a plot device, maybe. Raina didn't want to look I'm calling her by her first name too Raina didn't want to (laughs) make it seem like stage managing and doing that sort of stuff is really intense so she put that all in one character perhaps but you know if if there were a follow up story I'd like to see Bonnie and and what her life is like I agree I I was just looking I'm I'm flipping through the scene where she where she is crying in the in the in the, um, in the mop room um, in the in the janitor's closet, um, and it's comedic in a in in some way, but I don't think that I don't get the sense either that she's doing it to cause drama. There's a genuine hurt there, yeah, and it does make me wish like you're right. It doesn't fit the story to have her character be more in depth than she is. Um, because it is Callie's story, but yeah. I would love, yeah, I, I would love to see a, another story with her, with a little more focus on her and, and see what, you know, why she is the way she is, you know, how much of this is immaturity? Is there something else going on? You know, why is she so boy crazy? Is she just boy crazy? So it is, it is interesting how, like where you could take that character. Um, so after reading through Moon Over Mississippi, uh, Callie, and, and she has this scene, by the way, where she saw Les Miserables. Have you ever seen Les Miserables? Only on video. So Les Miserables happens to be one of the five Broadway musicals that I have ever seen. <gasps> oh, 
And it's one of the books that you would like to read? Yes. You've read. I, you would like I us to cover. I thoroughly enjoy the novel. I saw the play first. Um, Les Miserables and I go way back to the sixth grade. I saw it on Broadway in the 11th grade. I was in the second row back from the stage. Wow. Like, yeah. And Lacey Chabert, who would go on to be on Party of Five and then would play, um, I don't remember the character. She was in Mean Girls. Um, she was uh, Gretchen. Gretchen. Yeah. Stop trying to make Fetch happen. Um, <laughs> she played young Cosette. And, um, oh, yeah. Wow. And so it was, it was just, it was, a, it's a phenomenal musical. So I totally understand where, like, a little girl of Callie's age, and I love how she draws her, like, where she's in this cute little, like, you know, Sunday dress, you know, like, because you go to the theater of that caliber and you dress up. And her feet aren't touching the floor. And she's just like, oh my God. It's, yeah. So that I really, really liked. Um, Can um, you hear the people sing? Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. had to sing that in the sixth grade. That's yeah. So I, I love that scene. But so she, she goes into it. And she goes into the, the tangent aside now. She goes into Moon Over Mississippi. She <laughs> comments on how romantic the script is and how audiences love a sentimental of love story. Um, and then. Mirko, I think is uh, the name. Not quite sure about it, responds. But what about Shakespeare? His most successful plays were tragedies. How does drama portray both? Oh, man. Yes. I think <laughs> with the romance, which is the easier part, I think you're seeing... Unrequited love, you're seeing love that you think might be requited mm -hmm. between Jesse and Callie. And then you're also seeing, I think, beautiful moments between Justin and that stagehand whose name I've forgotten. And if you can recall, I don't know. And then Jesse, of course, and Wes. Wes, who's a little, he's on the fence as to whether, literally in figure, mm -hmm. uh, on the fence what, what he'll do there. So I think there are some beautiful moments with that and, you know, struggle. So it's not always easy. So it's it's realistic in the, in the way that uh, a love story would be where there's some conflict and some people get together, some people don't. With tragedies, I think... Mostly surrounding probably Callie, unfortunately, that she really has her heart set on for good or bad, Jesse, and then in the end, her her heart gets broken. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that would be the the tragedy of of what's happened. Yeah, I like how Jesse makes up with her, though. I, I think I think that. Um Again, showing that, like, the development of friendships kind of pulls this all together, you know, and by the end there's that there's that sense of friendship. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. And it, it does lead me into the, quite the last question I have on the list before we get into uh, feedback and all the other things. Um, <laughs> how does, like, how, where do these characters go from here? I mean, the following year is another production. And Callie's the stage and manager. So Drama 2, Electric Boogaloo could very well oh. come together. But, like, uh, we were just talking about a story where, like, we have Bonnie, or a little more character development of Bonnie. Let's take these characters, and instead of setting them 
in eighth grade because they're in seventh grade, I believe. Um, in That's correct. Except the twins are in eighth, yeah. and so is Greg. So let's set this in tenth grade. Like, let's set a sequel in ninth or tenth grade. Let's fast forward two or three years. Mm. How have they changed? What's different about them? in high school like what how does the story develop over the course of high school as opposed to middle school junior high school wow yeah well usually with high school your friend group either collapses or it changes drastically uh, occasionally it will expand i'm hoping that callie and liz are in it for the long haul and in 10th grade, that means that the other guys will be in junior year, so I feel like maybe they'll they'll have uh, another click. But also in high school, I think your desires start to change in the sense of what you are studying. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if some of them don't continue with drama and some of them do. So I think some of the people that have a passion for it will continue and, and maybe some won't. So <clears throat> I would say that their, their friend group shrinks a little bit. But I think definitely Callie and Liz and maybe the twins and Matt. I think Greg is not going to be in the picture. I don't want I, – I kind of want to <laughs> – I wonder what would happen between Callie and Matt. But I think it's one of those budding – I think it's one of those – let me see how to phrase this. She's going to wake up one day and realize she likes Matt. I think it'll be a slow burn, and it might happen junior, senior prom. They might go together, but maybe not (laughs) sophomore year. But I think Callie's in the drama and and all of that for the long haul. Uh, The nature of it, I imagine she'll be lower on the totem pole than she is her eighth grade year, because eighth grade year she's captain, I guess we'll say, of of the ship. But, you know, she'll start from scratch in uh nine so i guess she'll be moving up so i i imagine that hopefully things are okay as for you know i imagine i'll I'll take a darker turn now i think that jesse and justin might go through some struggles this is i guess where the realism comes into play and maybe bonnie uh something i don't know she needs to get her act in order or else she's going to be on a downward spiral I think you're right. I, I wondered about the Jesse and Justin thing as well, and and how much that um, that does affect uh, being in high school does affect them, you know, and uh, and what that'll be. Um, that could very well get into the very stereotypical area of, you know, coming out and struggling with your parents, et cetera, et cetera, sure. et cetera. Um, Bonnie, yeah, like. Where does Bonnie intersect? Does Callie become the one who holds on to drama and yet, um, you know, nobody else seems to, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, but I cer- I think it certainly would be more serious or you could attach attack more yeah. serious topics over the course of, um, you know, over the course of the, uh, the story in, in a, uh, in a sequel that's set in high school, I would I would love to see I would love to see another story with these characters and see where where, where yeah, she would fast go with forward. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, all right. So the big question, the last big question we always ask is, would you teach this? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I would recommend it, and I think I would teach it. I think it'd be a fun way to 
have like a I think I would do it as like a little book club though. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be like a small <laughs> a small, you know, select group of people and I think there's lots of teaching that could come out of it in, in terms of empathy and and um I don't mean this offensively, I just like the term the other, you know, someone yeah. who's not you yeah, 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 yeah. basically. And unfortunately with the 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 peoples that I teach, uh, it's very closed off. And so, I um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So no, I, no, I no, want to be able to bring it into a a broader audience. Yeah. I like that book club approach. I, I've I as we've done this podcast, and as I've also read some things here and there, and knowing that I can't have access to every single book for thirty kids every time. This idea of book circles, book clubs, smaller size groupings and things like that is something I've thought a lot about in terms of how I run my class, um, which for years has been centered around, you know, certain classics that everybody has to read. I think I would do the same thing. I think it's also a good kind of stepping stone away the scaffold things toward a larger work or more sophisticated work, perhaps a work of Shakespeare or perhaps another something in this vein of a romance or of uh, searching for your identity or something that is a little more serious, you know, Mm. or that is a little more, a little harder edged, you know, like that this is kind of the, the first step, you know, in the same way that I think sometimes you could pair a contemporary piece of literature with a classic piece of literature and use one to kind of step to the other. Um, I think you could do this to step to sort of more serious things. Like this is like a really, really good introduction book because you can see, um, you're right, you see empathy and you see people not like you. But then you also see how this book is a little more layered than it than it seems at, on a first glance. So you can really talk about subtext and subtlety and nuance and and what authors do in order to establish this and how they do it and how they do it skillfully. You know, what's beneath the surface? And I think that's a really, really important part of understanding literature and, and getting something out of it. So, yeah, I think it'd be... I don't think I'd teach it to... I think I would do it in, like, a middle school setting, though. I don't think this is a high school book, and I'm not saying that as a snob. Um yeah. Uh, but I do think it's really, really worth reading. I think adults should read this anyway. Um, I think especially if you have a teenager or a tweenager, which I almost have, um, I think this gives you some insight as to as to kids. You know, I think it's important mm-hmm. to read books of this of for meant for these ages because that is what, at least as a teacher, that's what my students are reading and that's what my kid would be reading or or what they might be going through. So. It's a, it's a pretty cool cool way to look at it without, you know, kind of forcing it. So, all right. Well, before we get on to our last, uh, last bit for the episode, uh, which is what we're going to be reading for the next time we sit down, we do have some feedback. We do have an email. And, uh, Stella, you're going to take our email from Robert Ward. Robert Ward. Dear Reading Buddies, I really enjoyed the latest episode on Fun Home. Unlike Tom, who listed it on his list of books of last year, I was going in completely clean and went into the book completely ignorant of its importance. 
Other than that reference, I had never heard of it, though I admit I was vaguely aware of the test named after Allison. Mm. My only real complaint was that I thought it was too smart for me. <laughs> this guy, he always thinks that everything's too highbrow for him. I think you underestimate yourself. There were constant literary references and analogies that just flew over my head, but I'm not sure that's not completely on me. While I flew through it in a single sitting, I would reread panels over and over again trying to understand everything. I didn't ultimately understand everything, and if I were to try again, I would probably have to really get into it. I'm a little nervous to say it, but when looking up Fun Home afterwards, and I discovered that there was a musical, I have to say, this is probably the, the, the first book on required reading that I had no interest in looking up as adaptation. <laughs> I think, I'm thankful that Stowe played songs and liked them, but for me, it was a major nope, and the clips only re <laughs> reinforced my opinion not to look into it. I knew pretty quickly in the intro song that I made the right decision <laughs> to pass it up. Heavens, I, I, I guess because the kids. Did you I fast liked, forward? Uh, no, I didn't. But I did like the I did like the intro song. But I have no interest in seeing the musical. Okay. So, it was. It, I thought the intro song was silly, but I, I really did like it. But <laughs> the three kids, yeah. yeah. Question time. Mm. I thought I, I was actually done, but I guess not. Question time. It's been a while, but I have thought up a question that I thought would be great to ask you two. Question. What are your opinions on long books? How ironic. Mm -hmm. Like, really, really long books. Very Didn't you ironic. just read that power play, too? Do you or have you ever felt intimidated by them and tried avoiding them? You've both talked before about large books, but I don't think you two have ever discussed whether they are something you purposely avoid or not. So always seems more apprehensive and wonder if that's accurate. I recently bought a sci-fi book on Audible, but now having buyer's remorse, it's really long, and I'm smacking myself because a physical book is probably a much easier read than an audiobook. I felt owning a couple of books physically would have been nice for reference purposes. I previously mentioned Caesar, Life of a Colossal, and Charlie Chaplin and His Times by Kenneth Lynn. I was tempted to look up something and share it after the Christmas Carol episode before I decided no one would care. Ooh. I also thought the William Gibson book, would have probably been better read than listened to. Should we pause there, or yeah, do you let, want me let's to pa finish? Let's pause there, because I think there's, okay. there's a decent... So what do we think about long, really, really long books? Oh, I've been intimidated by long books. There's a copy of Anna Karenina that is sitting <gasps> on the bookshelf in my living room that I don't is think that counts. haunting me. I've never read any Tolstoy. Um... I have I have War and Peace on my Kindle, um, although I got it like for free. So I, if I ever decide to actually read War and Peace, I might do some research as to what like a really good translation of War and Peace is. But I know I admit that I I would be um, a long a long book or a long book that, but with a caveat, a long book that is in a style that might be complicated. Um. I can plow through a couple hundred pages of Stephen King quickly, but Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, even like Homer, you know, that's going to take some time. So that's where I would feel, that's where I do tend to feel a little bit um, intimidated uh, and do avoid them or procrastinate on them, put them off, you know, that sort of thing. Robert Caro's The Power Broker is 
dense. Um, I'm in the middle of another book uh, that I've been picking up and putting down for like months. Like I'll read a little bit and put it away because it's just a dense history book. So yeah, I see where it is just an intimidating task and you feel like you should get a gold star just for finishing the thing. Um, so what about you? Yeah, I think... I don't know that I avoid them. I think I just like to read more books, and I can usually knock out a book in like four days. Mm-hmm. It depends. But, you know, and I like to just cycle through and, and read as many as I can. But then when you hit those long books, obviously you might be spending a long time with them. I think the last, the longest, well, I did do an American Tragedy, my Richard Reiser, that took me... That took me a while, and that was not a comfortable read, as in I did not like it. I think Pushkin biography was my big, or yes, biography was the one last summer that I did. Mm -hmm. And I have things, yeah. Anna Karenina, I didn't think it was as long as you think. But, you know, things like uh, Gone with the Wind or, uh, yeah, I've got Warm Pieces on my list. I think the Brothers Karamazov is on my list. Yes, so I, I have things that I ac- actually need to read, but you just have to choose. You know, are you going to – basically, that's going to be five-plus books that you're reading into one so you just have to have the mindset I think and you've got to have a, a pretty set goal I can often no I like to read 50 pages a day but when you get to some of those books it's hard because the 50 pages I can probably read 50 pages in 60 minutes yeah but with um, those types of books like War and Peace probably 50 pages I'm gonna probably have to do 25 pages in an hour and then you know and, and cut it down so you just have you have to make it manageable or else it's going to be it's going to be a pill. Also, if so, if you are coming in to it with a negative attitude, you're just not going to finish it. So you just, I think, you need to be there. So there have been times where I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this this time. I'm doing it, <laughs> and uh, it just doesn't work out. But you've you've got to just sit down and do it, which is something that's going to happen this uh, this summer with Tom and I. Yeah. So I don't not like them. I just like going I like reading as many books as I can rather than than sitting down and and spending a lot of time on one potentially yeah I will um I'll take breaks between long if I let write a read a long novel or a complicated novel a novel that takes me a long time to get through too um with that's called ADD I'm just kidding. It's it's very possible that I had it when I was younger. (laughs) Still do. No, I mean after. No, I'm what I meant. But oh, I will take breaks in the middle of it. But I will also take breaks like after reading it, and I will read shorter stuff for a while, and then I'll pick up another long one if I want to. You know, so I'm not going from War and Peace to Moby Dick to Paradise Lost to the canter like i'm not like reading heavy 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 long 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 i'm going from like something like a war and peace to oh i don't know drama or you know or something like that like you know i'll i'll balance it out mm. so so there's a sub question sub question do you as teachers support double dipping and buying physical books to companion audiobooks do you ever find physical books much more helpful that, than audio, particularly when they are really long? Have you ever found yourself flipping back and trying to remind yourself of what previously happened because the book is just so long? That's it for me. Thanks again for another great episode, and I hope you two have a wonderful month. Keep reading your Scholastic book, Buddy Robert. Do you think he got money? Do you think he has this drama book because he's Scholastic? I don't know. Does he? Is there a subscription there? There might be. Um... 
The answer is yes. <laughs> um, I I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks. Um, I don't know why. It was just not something that was ever... Um, it's just not something I ever really did. Uh, the exception to the rule has been... Um, one, the audiobook for the full audiobook for World War Z by Max Brooks is phenomenal and I highly recommend it. But also, um, the double dipping that I do, and I've mentioned this already on the show and in the Julius Caesar episode, I do this with Shakespeare. I sit and I, because Shakespeare, and this is something that, that in teaching the play this year, I noticed that Shakespeare really is to be listened to. And what I will do is I will download a book from Audible. Um, usually, like, the Folger Shakespeare Library has pretty decent productions. Uh, so I'll download something from them, and then I will um, play it while reading it. And I that helps me follow along a little bit better. Um, it also, and very often I'm prepping to teach it, too, but it does help me follow along. Um, but yeah, I do sometimes with the physical books or an ebook. I like having it in my hand just because if I have to go back and flip through something, I will. I'm more of a visual learner, so reading is, I think I can catch details better. Mm -hmm. And I did okay with our discussion on Sherlock Holmes because that was actually, I couldn't get it out of the library, so that I got the audio book instead and, and got that so that worked out i think the other, only double dip i have is because i think i only own two audio books so the only one that i have both a book and the audio book is wicked <laughs> a lot of times it's usually the summer that i read i read more audiobooks because i like to walk i usually walk once a day or so and so it's great to, to pass the time, and I've recently learned that I can put it on two times, two times speed, so actually they go through a little more quickly, and not trying to skip anything, but just, you know, yeah, re readers are good, but they're also sometimes slow, so this has been good. And also, I have been, I guess it's really this year I started, I started running, running to audiobooks, so I've, yeah, i recently read a uh, Star Wars novel it was the Cobalt Squadron which was focusing on Rose and her sister Paige pre The Last Jedi and then uh, 13 Reasons Why because I, I wanted to understand what the hubbub was about so yeah so I like them but only for a, I guess a distraction or as a companion to me if I'm doing something and I'll only do things that I I'm not going to do scholarly work mm -hmm. on because <laughs> otherwise I, I would be missing lots of details. Yeah. So. yeah. I've always been curious about 13 reasons why I might pick that up. Um, I actually, when I walk, when I remember to do this, um, I, that's why I, where I listen to podcasts. So I think that's replaced an audio book in this idea. Like I'll, I will sometimes, you know, Sometimes it's just one that I listen to on the regular, like this one, or like Batgirl the Oracle, um, <gasps> or you know a number of other podcasts that you can find on various networks. Or I will collect an entire like season of an audio drama or a like a true crime podcast. 
Oh, have you heard S-Town from... uh, I have. I enjoyed S-Town. Brian Reed! Yeah. It was so good, yeah. I um, am currently working my way through one that I think is all done now, but I'm working my way through Up and Vanished. Um, And uh, I also listened to their second podcast, um, Atlanta Monster, um, both of which are phenomenal. So, like, I so, but I with those, what I'll do is, um, and I did this with Serial when it first came out because I came into Serial a few weeks late, so um, I was able to listen to like the first four or five episodes, and then I had to start waiting a week for every episode. So, like with Up and Vanished, which I think actually finished last year, um, I download as much as my iPod can hold. <laughs> so it's like chunks of like seven or eight episodes and then I can just like kind of listen through them and it is almost like listening to an audiobook. So podcasts are my kind of audiobooks for for walking along and reading, but yeah, I'm kind of the same way with you where like I like to sit down and read it. I also like the kind of the physical like not having any background on noise idea of reading. It's a very calming activity for me for the most part. Not to get all zen about it, but oh yeah, I can't read if if people are talking yeah. or there's music with lyrics. The only exception is if I'm reading graphic novels or comics. I'll often put on like lo-fi hip hop, but it's just got to be it can't be words because the words I'm hearing what they're saying and not what I'm reading. Yeah, so I, mean, I just can't do that. Yeah, there's like the newspaper and magazines and that sort of stuff that I read all the time. Sure. I can read background noise, but if I really want to sit down and dig through a novel, especially something on the order of like you know, some of the some ones we've read, like I need a quiet room to do it in because I'm not going to be able to concentrate. Um, all right. So one last thing we have, we don't have any other feedback besides that, uh, but please thank you for uh, to anybody who retweeted us on, on Twitter and things. And I have to remember to mention you by name in the magic mirror. So I'm sorry. I will do that next episode. We have an update on fun home, um, fun home. This came across my email cause I get emails from the CBLDF Whoa. and they, said that Fun Home is currently, as of early June 2018, which is when we're recording this, being challenged in New Jersey. So I'm going to, I pulled this from the press release, the story that they sent me, um, or they, they, they didn't send me directly. It was just in the email that I got. It's on their website. The book was assigned to various senior English sections this spring, um, and a man whose last name is Disturco, wants it removed from the curriculum because before his child becomes a senior in the fall. He added, quote, We also don't want children to be singled out. We feel that would not be in the best interest for children in the community, referring to the opt-out policy for students who feel the work isn't appropriate for them. Disturco said he'll do what's necessary to prevent the board, to prove to the board that it isn't just a few families who feel this way. In an email to New Jersey's Echo Sentinel, Superintendent Elizabeth Jewett said that while she understood the concerns both parents had in terms of um, their challenge of the book, the work was chosen with careful consideration. The curriculum, she said, was expanded to include a broad range of literature to reach all students, not just works that portray traditional gender and sexual identities. The expansion of the English curriculum is in alignment with the strategic plan and is a result of a two-year research project process, sorry, which included professional development for the English department staff. Jewett says decisions about curriculum, quote, aren't taken lightly by the administration and take into account multiple perspectives. These changes were inspired by messages solicited by Jewett from graduating students about their experiences throughout high school and how things can be improved. After some students complained that the curriculum didn't reflect the full spectrum of gender and sexual identities, Jewett felt the 
took that feedback to heart. They said they felt marginalized because we were not more inclusive. So I just want you to understand that's something that really resonated with me and really concerned me. I did not want students to graduate from our school having had an experience where they didn't feel included in our school community. Mark Bisky asked what recourse was available to him. This is one of the other parents challenging. Uh, if he wanted the book removed from the curriculum, Jewett said suggested Bisky take the issue up with the department chair. She said if there was a larger picture issue that you wanted the board or administrator to consider, to consider you done, you've done that. Uh, Jewett said the English department went through a very thoughtful process with regard to this. Uh, we have expected school-wide learning results that speak to our strides to develop empathetic individuals that graduate from the school that are accepting and embrace the diverse students, cultures, and backgrounds. School Board President Peter Fallon added that Abishi felt his concerns weren't addressed after speaking further with the department chair. He returned to the Board of Education and bring up the matter again. So the, th the thing that just struck me, because, you know, these things get challenged, and we just did this as an episode, so that's why I included it in this section. Um, the one thing that did strike me was that this is a case where the school vetted the book. The school seemed to vet, a, vet the book very thoroughly. They put it on the curriculum, and they had an opt-out policy. And one of the parents said, well, we don't want the kids who opt out to be singled out and ridiculed, which th that's weak sauce to me as far as an argument is concerned. I'm sorry. I'm just like, no, I, that's that's not that doesn't hold water in my opinion. I mean, when you have an example of a school district going through like all of these proper channels, checking all the boxes to allow something, a, a book that is going to be controversial in to a uh, curriculum, and then you turn around and say, and we tell you, you know, you don't have to read it. You know, you could do something else. There's an opt-out. We'll provide an alternative assignment, which is everything I've ever done when a parent's objected. And you hear, well, I don't want my kid being singled out. It's like, then spite everybody? I just, uh, but but I, I wanted to provide that update because I just found it interesting, especially since it landed in my, in my inbox. Thoughts? I'm sure it won't be the last time. Probably not. Probably not. So... So, this brings us to the end of the episode. Um, I do want to remind everybody, I think I mentioned this last episode, there will be no episode next month. Stella and I are both traveling and doing other things related to vacations and uh, and other travels. So, we're, we're unavailable to record for one another and uh, we're, we're taking a month off. So, no episode next month. We will be back uh, in September, uh, with the first episode of the school year, essentially, and we will Stella will be picking the book for that one. And what is it? Yes. So Robert Ward came in at just the right moment because we're picking. I'm picking a long book that I really wanted to read, and I roped Tom into reading it with me, but. I did give him like six months in advance and said I would like to do it for them. I don't think either of us started. <laughs> well, no, that's that's true, but at least mentally it was on mentally the back were prepared, of yeah. like, yeah, yeah. We are going to read both parts of Don Quixote because right. <laughs> there is a part one and a part two by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Uh, the translator on this particular edition is Edith Grossman. So if you're looking for what this looks like, it'll be a red cover, and you'll actually see a knight's helmet on the front. Yes, 
and it is um, available on Amazon for two dollar one ninety nine. Yeah. Kindle, anyways. Yeah, I got, I got mine at a used bookstore. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, I got mine on Kindle because they were having like a dollar ninety nine sale. So it's readily available, and um, we just wanted to provide the translation because that is it's one of the times where I think you need to do that, and in the future with epics such as, say, Beowulf or the Odyssey or the Aeneid or the you know, whatever, Stella and I do try to make sure that we're reading the same, same translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so Don Quixote. I'm looking forward to this. I have talk about an intimidating long book, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. So, so sure. there you go. Uh, and that is it. So um, thank you everybody for for coming along. We hope that uh, this wasn't too much of a drama filled episode. Mm, See what I did yep, there. Yep, yep. And uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Rec Reading Cast, and that's R E Q Reading Cast, and you. Please uh, feel free to send us feedback, join the Facebook group, um, leave us a review in iTunes. And until in two months, we'll, we'll be talking again. And until then, thank you for listening and take care. Yeah, may your poppers stay in your pocket and may you not slip on water puddles. There you go. Good night. Good night. for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.